That is one of my favorite parts of our service, where we get, we get to see a visible picture of God's people just loving on one another. It's so beautiful. So we're, we're just so glad that you're here this morning. Um, and uh, yeah, let's, let's go to the Lord together in prayer uh, before we hear from his word. So let's pray. Father, we're so deeply grateful for your love that you have shown to us most visibly in sending your son Jesus to die for our sins on the cross. Lord, we're so grateful for your mercy and your forgiveness. We're so grateful that you have saved us not to be go-it-alone Christians, but you have saved us into a family that has people in it that we can do life with, that we can grow together, that we can point one another to you. What wisdom you have, Lord. In, in building your church. And Lord, thank you that you have revealed yourself to us in your holy word. You have not left us guessing what you are like. You have told us what you are like in your word. And so we pray as we approach your word this morning, we pray that you would, by your spirit, illuminate truth to us. Lord, we need you to shine the light of the Holy Spirit into our hearts so that we may understand what you've said to us, that we may apply it to our lives. We need your help. Um, we need you, Lord, to transform hearts and to transform lives. So would you do that, we pray this morning, for your glory, through your Son, in his name we pray. Amen. Well, good morning again, and happy New Year's Eve. Cannot believe that we are staring 2024 down the barrel. Uh, anyone have any New Year's resolutions that they've made? Yeah? Do you want to shout them out? Don't shout them out. That's weird. Um, I, I love New Year's resolutions. Uh, I love the fresh start. I love the accountability. And even though 2023 was going to be the year that I got ripped, 2024 is the year I'm getting shredded. I have, amen, <laughs> that's right. I have the, the Bowflex adjustable dumbbells in the basement. It's, this is my year. Um, for those who, who like New Year's resolutions, or even for those who don't, I wonder if we could take some inspiration from your favorite and my favorite 18th century American pastor, Jonathan Edwards, from some of his resolutions. Listen to this. This is what he resolved to do. Resolved that I will do whatsoever I think to be most to God's glory and my own good profit and pleasure in the whole of my duration without any consideration of the time, whether now or never so many myriads of ages hence. Resolved to do whatever I think to be my duty and most for the good and advantage of mankind in general. Resolved to do this, whatever difficulties I meet with and how many and how great soever. I can't say that any of my New Year's resolutions ever sounded like that, but that's really good. That's a godly resolution. What about this one? I, I love this one. Gen, Gen Z, listen up. This one's for you. Resolved to live with all of my might while I do live. Can you imagine what it would look like for a generation of young Christians to live with all of their might while they do live? That is a good and godly resolution. And I wonder if our text this morning will also produce another resolution in your life. So 
Would you please uh, grab your Bibles? If you don't have one, look off your neighbor, make a new friend. Would you please open to the Gospel according to Matthew, chapter 18, beginning in verse 21. Hear now the reading of God's holy, infallible, and authoritative word. Then Peter came up to him and said, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. Therefore, a king, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii, and seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, Pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me, and should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall endure forever. I had a great ninth grade English teacher. I don't remember much from high school, but I remember many of the things I learned in Miss Hall's ninth grade honors English class. I learned how to conjugate the verb to lie, lie, lies, lay, lying, lane. I learned that Wuthering Heights is the worst novel on the face of the earth. And I learned a little bit about Shakespeare. When we uh, went through Romeo and Juliet, Miss Hall actually made us memorize some key passages from Romeo and Juliet that I still remember to this day. But soft, what light through yonder window breaks? It is the east, and Juliet is the sun. O oh, Romeo, Romeo, wherefore art thou Romeo? Deny thy father and refuse thy name, or if thou wilt not, be but sworn my love, and I'll no longer be a Capulet. So there you go. Thank you, Jack. Thank you very much. Um, but another thing that she pointed out when we were studying Romeo and Juliet was that what Shakespeare introduced in the prologue to his play would have vast significance for the rest of the play. So she hit home this idea that these, these two people, Romeo and Juliet, were star-crossed lovers. It says that in the prologue. And she emphasized that then the rest of the play would serve to illustrate how and in what way Romeo and Juliet were star-crossed lovers. In the same way, in our passage this morning, the first two verses with Peter coming up to Jesus serve as kind of a prologue to the parable proper. 
And in this prologue, we get a taste. We see what the main point is, what the main theme is that the rest of the parable is going to explain how and why. So let's look at verse, 20, uh, verse 21. We see uh, Peter coming up to Jesus and saying, Lord, how often do I have to forgive my brother? And let's remember, this comes right after Jesus' teaching on church discipline in the Gospel of Matthew. So he, this is where he says, okay, if your brother sins against you, go to your brother, tell him his fault. If he listens, then you've gained your brother, and so on and so forth. And so you can imagine Peter's thinking, okay, great, but what if my brother sins against me again? And then again? And then what if he sins against me again? How often do we have to go through this? And so he comes up to Jesus, and probably thinking that he's being pretty pious, says, Jesus, should I forgive my brother up to seven times? I mean, that's kind of a lot. It's a good biblical number. It's the number of completion. Like seven sounds pretty good. And in characteristic fashion, Jesus responds unexpectedly. Not seven times, but 70 times seven. Or, or 77 times, some translations say. And for you math nerds out there, that's not 490 times, right? It's not like, okay, 490, but the 491st time, you're off the hook. You don't have to forgive. No, what Jesus is saying is that your forgiveness, my forgiveness, must be infinite, must be unlimited, must be the perfect number of completion multiplied by a factor of 10. Our forgiveness, Jesus says, must be unlimited. So this is the main theme of the passage. This is the main point of this sermon, that if you are to faithfully follow Christ, if you are to be a faithful member of Christ's kingdom that he has inaugurated on earth, you must forgive your brother or sister when he or she wrongs you. Forgiveness is not an optional part of Christianity. Forgiveness is foundational to the very essence of what it means to be a Christian. And what's more, this forgiveness must not be limited or stingy or begrudging. This forgiveness must be unlimited, limitless. Now, this standard seems pretty high. It seems pretty high to me. It seems pretty high to us. It seemed pretty high to the disciples as well. How in the world, why are we supposed to forgive people unlimited amount of times? That's really hard, Jesus. And Jesus says, I'm glad you asked. I'm going to tell you a story to illustrate my point. I mean, look, look at verse 23. Therefore. So we know that the therefore is therefore to tell us why Jesus has said his statement that he said. Jesus' parable of the unforgiving servant, which is one of the longest and most detailed in the Gospel of Matthew, illustrates three main reasons why our forgiveness must be unlimited. First, through this parable, Jesus teaches us that we must forgive for we have been forgiven an incalculable debt. Second, we must forgive for we are merely fellow servants of the king. And third, we must forgive or God will not forgive us. First, forgive for you have been forgiven an incalculable debt. In the beginning of the parable, we see two characters. We see a king and his servant. And for whatever reason, today's the day the king has decided to come calling. This is the day he's going to settle his debts. And he's completely within his rights to do this. He's the king. The money is his. 
And so he goes up to his servant, and it's discovered that this servant owes him 10,000 talents. Now, it's easy for us to sort of pass over that figure. Okay, we know it's probably a lot of money, 10,000 talents. I don't know what a talent is, but it's probably a lot. Okay, moving on. But this is where a little bit of historical context is really helpful in understanding the, the, real, um, the real power of this statement. So in, in the Old Testament, a talent was a unit of weight, which was 75 pounds. But by Jesus' day, a talent was a monetary figure that was worth about 20 years' worth of wages for a laborer. So do the math with me. If this servant worked in Southern Maryland in 2023, making about $50,000 a year, a talent would be equivalent to 50,000 times 20, or $1 million. But this servant didn't just owe one talent, he owed 10,000 talents. 10,000 times 1 million is a staggering $10 billion. This servant owed the king $10 billion. Now, we're not meant to go down hypothetical rabbit trails to figure out, okay, how in the world did this guy get $10 billion in the hole? That's not the point. The point is by using the largest monetary unit that existed, a talent, and the largest Greek numeral, 10,000, Jesus is making the point that this guy's debt is infinite. It's incalculable. It's larger. It's the largest number that it possibly can be. And this makes what the servant says in response a little comical. Look at verse 25. And since he could not pay, yeah, you think? He, uh, what does it say? His master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. And then what does the servant say? Have patience with me. I will pay you everything. Right. This guy's not going to pay $10 billion. It's an absurd statement. There's no way this guy could ever repay the infinite debt that he owed his master. And the servant obviously knows this, but already we're seeing a foreshadowing of the state of this guy's heart. He's self-sufficient. He's looking to himself to figure out how to pay this debt instead of throwing himself at the king's mercy. And yet... Surprisingly, the king is moved with pity in verse 27, or some of your translations say compassion, and he forgives the debt. $10 billion, just completely forgiven. Now, what are we meant to learn from that? What are we meant to learn from this first scene? We're meant to learn that in Christ, we have been forgiven an infinite debt that we owed God. Friends, we are meant to see ourselves as the servant in this passage. We owed God a debt we could never afford. And how did we get into that debt in the first place? We got into that debt through our sin against a perfect, holy creator. And the reality is a little more nuanced. It's not that the amount of our sin is commensurate with the quantity of our sin, although the quantity of our sin is much greater than you or I can imagine, no, the, the amount of our debt is commensurate with the greatness and glory of the one against whom we have sinned. Our sin is blacker than we can imagine because the one against whom we've sinned is more glorious than we can imagine. 
Jesus said in Matthew 19, 17, there is only one who is good. God is the supreme good in the universe. He doesn't just possess righteousness and justice and love. He is righteousness. He is justice. He is love. There never was a time when God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit was not. He is eternal. He is omnipotent, all-powerful. He is omnipresent. He is everywhere all at once. He is omniscient. He is all-knowing. He is omnisapient. He is all-wise. He uses his knowledge always and every time for the best possible outcome and purpose. He is holy, holy, holy. The whole earth is filled with his glory. He is not dependent on anyone or anything for his existence. He is not derivative. He created all matter out of nothing just by speaking it into existence. And he sustains all things by the word of his power. He is the one than whom nothing greater can be conceived. And can you believe it? This God is loving and gracious This God sends rain on the just and the unjust. This God created men and women in his image to enjoy fellowship with him, displaying the goodness of his glory. When we sin, this, this is who we're sinning against. When David sinned with Bathsheba, he, of course he sinned against Bathsheba, of course he sinned against Uriah, but what does he say in Psalm 51? He says, against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. All of our sin is against an infinitely holy God, which means the wickedness of our sin is an infinite wickedness. It's 10,000 talents of wickedness. It's $10 billion of wickedness. It's a debt that you and I have absolutely no hope of repaying. And yet... Friends, God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, in other words, even when we owed him 10,000 talents, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And he's raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards you in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. If you have trusted Christ, God, like the king in the parable, has forgiven your incalculable debt He has done this by placing your debt on the shoulders of his perfect, beloved, only begotten son who bore in himself on the cross the punishment for your sin and my sin and who showed that that sacrifice was effective and victorious by rising from the dead. What grace, what mercy, what kindness, Christian, If you are to faithfully follow your Lord, you must forgive your debtors, for God has forgiven your incalculable debt in Christ. But of course, this isn't the end of the parable. 
It's just the first scene. And as the story continues, we learn a second reason that our forgiveness must be unlimited. You and I are merely fellow servants along with those who are indebted to us. So let's read, let's keep reading at verse 28. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. So after our friend has been forgiven his $10 billion debt, what does he do? We think he should be like Ebenezer Scrooge after he sees the ghost of Christmas future and goes and buys the fat turkey for Tiny Tim and visits his nephew and says, God bless us, everyone. That's what we think he should do. But what does he do? He goes out, he finds a fellow servant who owes him some money, and then violently assaults him and makes him pay back what he owes. Verse 28, listen to this violent language. Seizing him, he began to choke him. Now, even if we don't know exactly why, we should be struck by the wrongness of this scene. I mean, technically the guy did owe him money. Technically he should have paid back, but some, this scene obviously there is wrong. Even, even those who maybe have a, a naturalistic worldview or a materialistic worldview who think, this is all just a matter of chance and evolution and survival of the fittest. And yet even, even someone, even our friends like that would, would, would say, no, th this is wrong. There's something wrong about this scene. It's wrong after you've been shown mercy to not extend that mercy to others. I felt this a few weeks ago when I was uh, driving to work. I work uh, on Bowling Air Force Base and one of the gates was closed and I was running late and there were lots of traffic getting on base, and I was in a line, and this guy comes up to me, and he like tries to get in, and I'm like, okay, take a breath, you're a Christian. <laughs> Let this guy in. So I did, I showed this guy 10,000 talents worth of mercy, and let him in front of me, and so then we're, we're, we're creeping along, and then another guy comes along and pulls up in front of the other guy, and he doesn't let him in. He just keeps going. And I wanted to get out of my car and say, I showed you mercy. You should have shown that guy mercy. So we know that that's wrong. We know that it's wrong. Um, we know it's wrong. And in this parable, it's, it's even more grievous for a couple of reasons. So, so first, the amount that this servant was owed was infinitesimally small compared to the amount he owed his master. So we see in verse 28 that this guy was owed 100 denarii. So again, some, a little historical context. A, a denarius, which is a, the singular version of denarii, uh, was what a laborer earned for one day's work. So this was a day's wage. So using our contemporary comparison, the same math from before, if you figure someone works five days a week for 50 or so weeks a year, he'd make about $200 a day, and so 100 denarii would equal around $20,000. So the other guy owed the servant $20,000, which is 500,000 times smaller than the $10 billion debt that this guy had just been forgiven. And I'd like to make a side note here. Clearly the point of the parable is that 
the debt that we are owed is so small compared to the debt we owe God. A hundred denarii is nothing compared to 10,000 talents. But 20,000 bucks is still a good chunk of change. It's, it's not nothing. It, it's hard. It's hard to forgive. It would be hard for us to forgive a $20,000 debt. And I think we can take from that that forgiveness, showing mercy, is hard. There's always a cost. There's always a cost. Even if it's smaller, it's still a cost to forgive someone their debt. And yet we can acknowledge this hardship and then put it in its proper place. Friends, listen to this. There is no wrong that has been or ever will be committed against you that is not infinitesimally small compared to the amount you have transgressed your holy creator through your willful disobedience, rebellion, and sin. And I say that with trembling because I know that there are some here who have experienced deep hurt. God loves you. He is with you. He is weeping over the wrong that has been perpetrated against you. Jesus is coming back to make all things right and to wipe away every tear from every eye that trusts him. But maybe he is showing you this morning that if you white-knuckle that hurt, if you allow it to become all-consuming, if your victimhood morphs into your identity, then you will lose sight of the fact that you too are guilty and Jesus has paid your debt. If you are a Christian, your deepest identity is not victim, but son, daughter, heir, beloved, royal priesthood, holy nation. So we see in this parable the the incongruity of the amount of debts that were owed, but we also see another detail that Jesus clearly takes pains to emphasize. The servant was owed a debt by whom? A fellow servant. In fact, the whole parable, it says fellow servant four times, which should kind of alert us to, oh, this this detail is important. And the word for servant is actually slave. So this is a fellow slave, a bond servant. Um, And that looked a lot different in the ancient Near East than what we think of. Um, But the point is, is that these these, these, these guys were at the very bottom of the totem pole. If, if this were basic military training, these guys are trainees. They're both trainees. They're at the bottom of the totem pole. They were both forced to do the will of their master with great risk of harm to themselves if they refused. And yet, how does the unforgiving servant treat the other servant who owed him money? He treated him as if he were the master, not a fellow servant. When we refuse to show mercy, what we are implicitly saying is that we have the authority to execute justice. We're saying that we have the higher position from which we can dole out judgment and vengeance. But that's a lie. We do not have that position. Friends, you and I are just fellow servants. There is one master, and he and he alone can say, vengeance is mine, I will repay. He is the only just judge. It is not our place to be unforgiving. We don't have that authority. We forgive 70 times 7. 
because we can acknowledge that there is only one righteous judge, and we are not him. We can trust that he will make all things right. We are merely fellow servants who have been forgiven a $10 billion debt. So we've seen that our forgiveness must be unlimited because we've been forgiven an incalculable debt. We've seen that our forgiveness must be unlimited because we are merely fellow servants of the king who are owed just a fraction of what we owe God. And as Jesus concludes the parable, we see that our forgiveness must be unlimited or God will not forgive us. Look with me at verse 31. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me, and should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Now, Jesus' last statement makes us very uncomfortable. Come on, Jesus. We are good Protestants. We know that we are saved by grace through faith apart from works. We know that God forgives us based on the finished work of Christ on the cross. So how can Jesus say, if you don't forgive someone, namely if if you don't do something, then God won't forgive you? Does that mean my forgiveness is is dependent on a work? How, How is that so? And it's not just here, friends. Jesus says after the Lord's Prayer in Matthew 6, For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your heavenly Father forgive your trespasses. And again in Luke 6, forgive and you will be forgiven, implying if you don't forgive, you won't be forgiven. And what about James 2.13? Judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. The teaching of the New Testament is crystal clear. If you do not forgive your brother or sister their sins, God will not forgive your sins. How can this be? How can this be when we're saved apart from works? I think the answer to that question lies at our identity as Christians. Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. 2 Corinthians 5.17 Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. When someone becomes a Christian, that is, when someone recognizes their $10 billion debt, despairs of ever being able to pay that off themselves, turns to God from sin, believing that Jesus paid that debt for them through his death on the cross and resurrection from the dead, that person becomes a new creation. That person is sealed with the Holy Spirit of God, Ephesians 1. The love and grace and forgiveness that that person has received from God must necessarily flow out to others. If we persist in unrepentant anger and unforgiveness, then we are merely proving that we have never tasted God's free forgiveness 
in the first place. Keep your finger with me in Matthew 18 and then flip to the back of your Bibles to 1 John. 1 John 4.10. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. Look at that last verse again. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. You cannot love someone and refuse to forgive them. Forgiveness from the heart is essential to loving someone. So I think it's possible to say, looking at that verse, if we forgive one another, God abides in us and his forgiveness is perfected in us. But friends, what does that imply? If we don't forgive one another, God doesn't abide in us and his forgiveness is not perfected in us. If you refuse to forgive, if you persist in digging your heels in, if you do nothing but desire the other person's hurt and pain, if you feel self-justified and self-righteous in your wrath, then what does the Bible say? God does not abide in you, and you have never truly experienced Jesus' forgiveness in your own life. That's how Jesus can say God won't forgive you if you don't forgive others. If you don't forgive others, then you've never really experienced the free forgiveness that Jesus offers. And I want to be careful here because forgiveness is really, really hard. There is a category of of person, of situation, where I've experienced this in my own life, where you've been wronged, you're, you're mad, you're angry, and you know that you have to do something with that. So you go to God, you say, God, I'm, I'm so angry at this person. I'm so mad, and I know that I'm supposed to forgive them, but I don't want to, and I'm, I'm struggling with that. Would you help me? Would you soften my heart? Would, would, you, would you help me to love this person? And then you maybe feel like you've forgiven them, and you feel better, and then the next morning you wake up, and you're madder than you know what, and you're, and you're still upset. And so you run to the cross again. You, you plead with God for mercy. You desire to forgive them, but it, it's, it's hard. Do you see how, how that, that category of person is very, very different than someone who is content and even um, haughty in their withholding of forgiveness? That other person that is fighting imperfectly but striving to honor Jesus, even though they're struggling to forgive, that's what sanctification looks like. It's a stock market graph. One day we're up, one day we're down, but we're trending more and more and more to Jesus. So I just want to be careful that that is not the type of unforgiveness that we're talking about here, where you're you're struggling, but you're trying, you want to follow God. We're talking about a different type of unforgiveness. I mean, look at the, the, um, the, un, the, the wicked servant in the parable. He never expresses gratitude to the master for forgiving him of his debt. He, he acts like he can repay this debt himself. 
This guy seeks out his fellow servant, wants to throw him in jail. This guy ignores the, the other's pleas for mercy. So that is very different than struggling and fighting to forgive. But if that type of unforgiveness does describe you this morning, and only you and God know if that's the case, then you need to hear Jesus' warning today. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. So we've seen the play. We've heard the prologue, which introduces the main theme, Christians must forgive unlimitedly. We've gone through the subsequent acts to see that Christians must forgive because they've been forgiven an incalculable debt. You must forgive because you are merely a fellow servant who's owed a fraction of what you owe God. And you must forgive or Jesus will not forgive you, which is most sobering of all. And maybe you're hearing this. I hope you're hearing this and feeling convinced from Scripture that to faithfully follow Christ you must be a person marked by forgiveness, both received and given. And don't take my word for it. Take God's word for it. And maybe you're thinking, yes, okay, it's a new year. I know I need to forgive. I need to start forgiving in the new year. I want to forgive, but I don't know how. I don't know how. I don't know where to start. Well, one of the themes throughout the Bible is that things that we know impact what we do when we believe and remember true things, that impacts how we live our lives. Romans 12, 2, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by what? The renewing of your mind. You will begin to be transformed in the area of forgiveness when you consistently renew your mind. You must remember and meditate on the inconceivable debt God has forgiven you in Christ. Pause and thank God for his incredible mercy. Let the horrors that Jesus underwent on the cross on your behalf and the glory of his victory over death and sin and the devil move you to, to, to thankfulness, move you to love, deep love of your Savior. Let the fact that the God of the universe has set his covenantal forgiving love on you, on you, bring you to your knees in thankfulness and worship. And then, with that heart posture, maybe you pick up the phone. Maybe you call that sister who wronged you, who you've been holding a grudge against, and you ask her out to coffee, and you sit down, and in humility you say, what you did really hurt me, and I've been very angry with you, but I want you to know that I've been forgiven so much by God, and I want to extend that same forgiveness to you. And also, my, my anger towards you is sin as well. So I'm sorry. I'm sorry that I've been holding a grudge against you. Would you forgive me? And maybe... God will bless that conversation and you will have restoration with that sister. You need to remember that anyone who wronged you is merely a fellow servant. You do not have the authority to dole out 
judgment. And since the person who wronged you is a fellow servant, even if that person is not repentant and reconciliation isn't possible, you still have the command from your Lord to love that person, to love your enemies. So what might that look like? What might loving your brother or forgiving your brother from your heart, even if they're not repentant, look like? Well, it might look like praying for them regularly. It might look like desiring their good. It might look like, hear this, refusing to gossip about them. It might look like resolving to not speak ill of that person. That's what forgiving them from your heart might look like to someone who is unrepentant but has sinned against you. If you are a Christian, your job is to obey your Lord by loving even your enemies and then leaving the rest to his judgment while you follow your creator while doing good. And finally, you must remember and heed Jesus' warning. Do not ignore the pricking of the Holy Spirit. If you are listening to this and Jesus' warning is hitting home, do not wait a second longer. Be awakened to the danger that your soul is in. If you persist in unforgiveness, you will not be welcome in heaven, which is a place characterized by mercy and forgiveness. God is a God merciful and gracious, abounding in steadfast love. If that doesn't describe who you are, of course imperfectly, then you do not know God. Friend, receive the forgiveness that Jesus freely offers you at the cross. All the fitness he requires is for you to feel your need of him, and all who come to him he will by no means cast out. Ask Jesus to forgive you of your sin. Ask him to help you live for him the rest of your days and honor him as you entrust your soul to him. I love the Chronicles of Narnia. Uh, I've loved the Chronicles of Narnia for years. Um, and one of my favorite scenes in the entire series takes place in the fifth book, in The Voyage of the Dawn Treader. And uh, in that book, uh, we have, the, you know, the Pevensey kids, Peter, Susan, Edmund, and Lucy. In that book, Edmund and Lucy have gotten into Narnia along with their cousin Eustace, who is just a horrible little boy. He is selfish and worldly, and he complains, and he's like the worst little boy. So they're in Narnia, they're on this voyage, they're on a ship called the Dawn Treader, they get shipwrecked, and they find themselves on this island, and Eustace has had it with the Pevensey kids, He's had it with that talking mouse, Reepicheep, and he has decided to slink away. He wants nothing more to do. And he, he slips away, and he comes upon a dragon's lair. And would you know it, he finds the dragon's treasure, and he falls asleep on it with dragonish thoughts in his heart. And when he wakes up, he has turned into a dragon. And at that point, that's his low point. He's realized, wow, I've been a dragon all along. And now my outside matches my inside. And he's sorry for his sin. He's sorry for the way that he's been behaving towards his family. And he wants to make it right. But he can't undragon himself until he meets the great lion, Aslan, who says, follow me. And Aslan says to the dragon, Eustace, 
take your dragon scales off. And Eustace tries, he's, he's pulling his scales off and he makes a little bit of progress, but he, he, can't, he can't get those dark and coarse and ugly scales off of him by his own strength. And then Aslan says to him, you have to let me take it off. And Aslan sinks his, his claws into Eustace and rips his dragon scales off of him. He's a boy again. And what's more, Aslan gives him new clothes to put on. Friends, our, our unforgiveness is like the, the ugly, coarse dragon scales. And we can't, we can't just muster it up and rip them off on our own. We need Jesus, by the power of his Holy Spirit, to reach in and rip those scales off of us so we can be who he's made us to be, a new creation in Christ. We need God, by the power of his Spirit, to help us show forth the light of his mercy and his forgiveness and his loving kindness to a watching world so that they might know that there is a God who can give them forgiveness of their sins. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we are so grateful for the mercy that you have shown us in Christ. While we were dead in our trespasses and sins, you sent your Son to live the life we never could. You have inaugurated your kingdom on earth, and we are so grateful that you are our God. Lord, would you help us to apply this word to our lives? Would you help us to be a people, to be a church marked by forgiveness so that we might display your goodness and your glory to a watching world? This we pray in Jesus' name.